Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hi, Maria. Hi, Shelly. How are you? I'm great. Still sweaty from jujitsu. How how did Morgan do? Good. So we we only just started attending on Thursday nights because I thought it was for like the advanced kids, but it turns out it's not. And they do like games on Thursdays, and it's a whole lot of fun. And so we started going to this. There's a big competition she's... this Saturday, so everybody's all serious. Ooh, is Morgan in it? No, we're not competing. We're not good enough to compete yet. <laughs> um, but a lot of a lot of the people from our academy are competing. So we're going to go watch and cheer everybody on. Great. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. So I figured we could go right into our current events or latest news around feeding or infant sleeping and whatnot. Yeah. Um, did you hear about the Mamaru recall? I did not hear about the Mamaru recall. Yeah, so over 2 million Mamaru swings and Rockaroo rockers were recalled. Uh, um, so, why? yes, so apparently there was a 10 month old baby that died from strangulation. And what the article says is when the swing or the rocker is not in use, their restraint straps can hang below the seat and the crawling infants can become entangled in the straps, posing entanglement and strangulation hazards. So four moms have received two reports of infants being caught in the strap underneath the Mamaro infant swing under crawling, after crawling under its seat, according to the statement. Um, This includes a 10-month-old who died asphyxiation, that's a mouthful, and another 10-month-old who who suffered bruising to his neck. So... Mm. Those swings and rockers were sold at Bye Bye Baby in Target from January 2010 to August 22. And the n- model numbers are the f- are 4M005, 1026, and 1037 for the Mamaru models. For the Rockaru models, it's 4M012. And these serial numbers or product numbers can be, model numbers can be located on the bottom of the products. So, yeah. Everybody go check your swings and bouncers. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, make sure the straps aren't hanging down when not yeah. in use. Cord straps, they can be tricky, man. Like, you know, having to put your, your blinds cords up. Oh yeah, of course. And there's those strings are so skinny. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised adults don't get caught in those strings. Maybe they do, but they don't see. (laughs) (laughs) Too embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah. I feel so bad for those families too. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. So if you have one of those products, go check the model number. If it's one of those models, throw it out or contact the company or whatever you do when there's a recall. Maybe we can throw those serial numbers in the um, description for the podcast. Oh, the show notes. Yeah, that's actually a really good idea. Or the link to the article, at least, where you can see all the information. Yeah. Yep. All right. Next, let's go into our question of the week. Dun-da-da-da. (laughs) Dun-da-da. We need a little sound button that does that. (laughs) Like a radio show? Yes. Do you remember when radio shows were, like, all about the side effects? (laughs) Yes. But come on. Those are so fun. We get ourselves like one of those little Casio keyboards that has like fun pre-recorded sounds on it. (laughs) I like your ambition. (laughs) Okay. So this week's question is, has, have you dealt with a persistent nipple bleb? I've had one on my right side for probably a good three months now. I saw it initially. It was small and not bothering me. So I left it alone and figured it would go away. Now the past couple of days, it's getting uncomfortable to nurse. And it seems like it may be getting a little bigger. Any tips or tricks to get rid of it? I guess we should probably define a nipple bleb in case there are readers out there that don't know. Probably lots of people that don't know what that is. Yeah. So a nipple bleb is essentially a blocked nipple pore. 
Um, it can happen at any point during your breastfeeding or pumping journey. You may not even be a breastfeeding parent, but you can get a nipple, a blocked nipple pore. It's not an uncommon thing, but it can be really painful. And it looks like a little white head on the tip of your nipple, basically. And some people think it just looks like milk or like dried milk that's on their nipple. And for some people, it may not hurt that bad, so they may not pay too much attention to it. And it might it might resolve on its own or it might not. Right. And some if you do kind of want to get rid of it because it can cause like plug ducts further up in the breast, which can also lead to mastitis and all this yeah. other fun stuff that we don't really want to deal with. Yeah, it's a, plug ducts are a really common side effect of nipple blood. Mm-hmm. So it's how would you treat blood. how would you treat a nipple blood? Well, what I always tell my families is you have to really keep this skin over that nipple blood as soft as possible. Um, you don't want to pick at it ever because that can just lead to infection and that infection on your skin goes right directly into your breast and that can lead to that. Um, but some of the most common ways to keep that skin soft is with oil, either coconut or olive oil. Some people will soak like a cotton ball and keep that in their um, top throughout the day um, just to keep that, again, that skin really soft because you need that skin to be soft so that it can, for lack of a better word in my mind, break open on its own when you're either nursing or pumping in order for it to flow freely from there and sometimes when you have a block uh, a nipple blood like that and it does open you have like this weird stringy milk that comes out of there oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know how everyone has like certain things that just freak you out like that's one of or when you just get like the plug duct and it releases and you oh the stringy milk (laughs) and the stringy milk comes out with that yeah it's so weird um it's like snotty milk it's so weird naughty milk that's the best way I could think to describe it um but yeah and you need to keep that super clean and you want to keep it soft until it's entirely resolved sometimes this doesn't work sometimes it persists through all of those things and then you might have to go to your OB and they might have to lance it in their office with sterile equipment yeah, and that's what I usually recommend, right? If it doesn't go away, go see your your PCP or your OB, and they will, you know, open it with yeah. a sterile needle True. or something. Yeah. But because I've been seeing so much more of them lately, I have had more people go to their OBs, and the OBs are like, "No, we're not. We can't help you with that." Which is really, yeah, that's which frustrating. Is and I even sent someone to like a breastfeeding specialist, or I mean, yeah. a breast specialist, and they were like. Um, there's no benefit to opening it. So, and she wouldn't open what? it for the parent. That's right. Frustrating. Right. Cause it's, it's uncomfortable. It hurts to latch a baby can, when you have a milk blood. It definitely can be super painful. And again, lead to plug ducts that don't resolve mm-hmm. or just chronic plug ducts. And especially in one area, can lead to mastitis. So that's, that's super weird. I wonder like a, my follow-up to those providers would be so with all of this pain associated with this nipple bleb, what is your solution to that problem? Well, it's just another example of how the medical community just doesn't know anything about breastfeeding, how breastfeeding works and doesn't care either. Yeah. Women and their bodies and their struggles. Yeah. yeah. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> Keep your nipple pain to yourself. Nobody wants to hear about it. Just go home and suffer. Yeah, really. It's fine. I did have that client. She went home and sterilized the needle and opened it up herself, which I do not recommend. But at that point, she was kind of like, I'm I'm done. I'm over it. I went to two different doctors. Neither of them would do it. So it's like. Oh, that's desperation right there. That hurts my boobs just thinking about it. I think those in like rural farming communities would probably be like, what's the big deal? <laughs> do it from my cows all the time. No yeah, deal. I sew my own <laughs> stitches up all the time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, what other tips do you have for people to try to resolve those on their own though? Did you mention Epsom salt? I didn't mention Epsom salt soaks. Epsom salt soaks can be great to do too. 
And some people swear by filling up like a haka with warm Epsom salt water and suctioning that on helps too. Um, I don't think there's any research available on how effective that is, but people seem to just think it works very well. So, yeah, I think the, the biggest thing is not, don't let that area dry out, which seems kind of counterintuitive. I I have had a a family come to me and be like, I've been trying to keep it really dry. But what happens when you do that is that like the skin basically just kind of gets tougher. Yeah. um, And makes it more difficult to resolve. And sometimes the baby can open it for you, which is not as comfortable as seeing your own baby. Right. But ideally that's, that would be how it would work, right? You would just keep Mm. it as soft as possible with either oil or Epsom salt or whatever. And then baby nurses and they're able to sort of open it up on their own. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they drink the snotty milk so you don't have to see it. (laughs) (laughs) The stringy milk. Oh, stop saying (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) It's a good visual, doesn't it? Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, enough about Bringing milk and milk labs. That was a great question. Thank you for submitting that. Yeah. And if you have questions you'd like us to answer, you can submit them on Instagram through DM at Shelly Taft IBCLC. All right. Next up is our guest. This week, I'm so excited to announce our guest, Uniti from Nested to Rested Sleep Consulting. Uniti is a certified pediatric sleep consultant and she educates, empowers, and supports exhausted families to get the sleep that they deserve and need to thrive by using a customized, holistic, and evidence-based sleep approach to help establish healthy sleep habits in children zero to five years of age so families can get well-rested and thrive. She lives outside of Atlanta, Georgia with her husband, who is a child psychiatrist, her daughter, and her son. And she's here to talk to us all about transitioning to the crib. Hi, Oniti. How are you? I'm good, Shelly. How are you? Good. I'm so excited that you're here to talk to us about transitioning to the crib. I know it's a hot topic among some of the families that I work with. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about that. That's like a very big topic among my community as well. So I'm Mm -hmm. happy to spread some knowledge to the parents that need this information. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Uniti Patel, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia, with my husband, who's a physician, with two kids, a daughter who's five, and a son who's almost three. And I have over eight years of clinical research experience that I bring into the world of pediatric sleep. So I use a lot of holistic, evidence-based research to support my families with their exhausted sleep habits with their children in hopes of getting them to become well-rested and thriving in parenthood, which is my goal for every single family out there. Mm -hmm. I love your Instagram account. I love that like vibe kind of send off this vibe of like no judgment. Let's figure out what works for your family. And I just love, and your kids are like, oh my gosh, they're so cute. My ovaries explode every time I look at your feet. Thank you. Yeah, I get that every time. Like I drop my kids off at uh, their school, their preschool in the morning. And this one, like they see my kids every single day, but they still be like, oh my God, your child is the cutest son ever when there's other children around. I'm like, okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. And then I have to reassure my daughter too. It's like, oh, you're really pretty too, baby. (laughs) I love how much you like you, you give on your social media. Like it's so obvious that you're there to support families and that you're very passionate about what you do. How did you fall into like sleep consulting? Yeah. So thank you for that. And yeah, I try to be as supportive and non-judgmental as possible. And I give that freedom to my clients too, that I work with one-on-one. I just let them know, like, listen, you can do basically whatever you want. And as long as it's going to go and lead us to the right direction that we're aiming for. So um, that's my philosophy. And I use that with my clients as well. And they love that aspect because they have free range to do whatever, as long as it gets them sleeping better. But I got into this profession because 
like I said, I'm a researcher. I work for the VA and the CDC for eight years combined, over eight years. And I left it. I left my dream job, was doing infectious disease epidemiology research. And I left it for motherhood, <laughs> um, as most of us moms do, right? We leave our dream job, careers, professions behind to become stay-at-home moms. And I did that. I you know, mentally it was exhausting to be a stay-at-home mom. It was actually harder to be a mom than Mm -hmm. it was to be in the professional world. But all of that put together just led me to figure out how I can improve my daughter's sleep because we really struggled with her, especially after we traveled to India, which we did when she was five months. And then we had a major sleep regression with her. And then we had that for like four months. And then you know, I did a ton of research, I sleep trained. And then with that, I sleep trained my son. By the time he was two months, he was sleeping eight hours a night, which was super awesome for two months. So I was really proud of that. And then after that, friends and family started contacting me, because I would tell them like, Oh, my son's sleeping eight, nine hours. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But And then I was pregnant at the same time with some of my other friends. So we had kids around the same age, which helped. So I would help them. And one of my best friends contact, like told me, like, I should do this professionally. And I'm like, you know, why not? And as soon as COVID hit, COVID hit in March. By May, I was enrolled in a sleep certification program. And it was like overnight thing. Like I made the decision. I enrolled within less than 24 hours. <laughs> it was super quick. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I got into it. And I am so glad I did because it really gives me the platform to help families. And, you know, I talk about this on my page all the time that I had no village. And that is essentially my goal is to become that village for families. And luckily, most of my clients that come to me, they are in that same boat. Most of them are, you know, away from family, away from that support system. And I love being that support system. One of my very first clients, I will never forget this, She's a medical resident in New York. She's Brazilian. Her family's in Brazil. She literally compared me to her mom. She's like, I felt like my mom was with me. And I'm like, it brought me to tears. I'm like, oh my God. I still have that message saved. And I look back at it because she texted it to me, right? So I look back at it. I'm like, this is why I do what I do. I love how like when you're just telling us that story, like your passion just shines through in your body language and your voice. And I love that you're so like into helping families. I'm like getting scary right now. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny how we like kind of fall into these jobs based on our own experiences? Like I I don't know any kids that are like, I want to be a lactation consultant when I grow up. And I don't know any kids that are like, I want to be a sleep consultant when I grow up. But once you like experience that hardship and the struggles that parents everywhere around the world are going through more so in some countries than others, it's hard to resist that call to be a source of support for families. Yes, 100%. I completely agree. So let's talk about transitioning to the crib because I get this question a lot. And one of the questions I get is, when should you transition to the crib? Like, how do you know that your baby's ready for that? Yeah. So you can honestly put your baby into a crib as soon as you bring them home from the hospital if you wanted to. A lot of the time, the other option is like a crib site bassinet, and then you can transition them from the bassinet to the crib. And that transition, usually I recommend that to occur when your baby starts to show some signs of rolling. So those can happen any time between like three and five months. And that's also the time when you want to transition them out of their swaddle is when you see that first sign of rolling. I actually recommend transitioning out of the swaddle closer to eight to 10 weeks, honestly, because you never know in the middle of the night, your baby could start rolling over and you don't want to be in that position where you find them rolled over in a swaddle the next Mm -hmm. morning. So that would be my recommendation is to really pay attention to those signs during the daytime, right? Because that's when you're going to be doing tummy time and noticing all the development your baby is having. And when you do see them rolling, even if it's to their side, I would take that as an indication that they might be ready to transition out of that swaddle and maybe ready for that crib. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I completely agree. When I'm working with families, I do encourage like 
earlier weaning from this bottle because of what you said. Because then if they roll over, it's like you have to cold turkey wean them. Mm-hmm. And that can be like a little bit harsher for parents and the baby. But also for a baby who is having like a lot of breastfeeding struggles due to like tightness and their body or asymmetry in their body, the swaddle can really inhibit their ability to get rid of that tightness and that asymmetry. So wow. I usually encourage family, like definitely don't swaddle during the day if you're having breastfeeding issues um, and then try to wean your baby out of the swaddle as soon as possible. Yeah. I actually just recommend them swaddling like when they really need to soothe them, like their baby is like crying uncontrollably and, you know, or is the witching hour or they're colicky and they're crying for hours. I recommend them to swaddle them only during that time during the day, honestly, because anytime outside or when they're sleeping, but anytime outside of that, they don't need to be swaddled. Right. They need movement. They need to (laughs) to figure out the world (laughs) and the space around them. Exactly. So I know, um, or I believe the AAP recommends keeping your baby in your room with you for six months. So how yeah, do uh, you- up to six months and um, up to a year if you like, but at least for six months. Okay. So what about families who are like, well, I can't fit the crib in our room. Do you suggest that they yeah. wait then until the six month mark before transitioning to the crib? Yeah. So if space is an issue, and I have definitely worked with clients where space is an issue and- They have done perfectly okay with using a pack and play system. Mm -hmm. That way they can set up the pack and play when it's sleep time and then put it away if they need to, or if they need more walking space in their room, things like that. But a pack and play or portable crib, whatever you want to call it, acts like a crib as well. And that's also approved for safe sleep. Great. And is there any other standard by which you measure if they're ready or not besides starting to roll or age, like I know some like bassinets have like a weight limit or anything like that. Is that something you encourage parents to pay attention to? I mean, if your baby's on the heavier side, then I'm assuming they're going to start rolling over anyways earlier. So I feel like the rolling sign is essentially the first sign I look for for that transition. A lot of the times parents will want to transition their baby earlier. Like, for example, I transitioned my son earlier, too. I've had a few clients that transition their babies earlier just because they wanted to break that habit earlier than later and just give them that space in their own room like they wanted to transition them out of their room and into their nursery before the six-month mark and what I have parents do at that point if they wanted to do that is I have one of the parents actually sleep in the nursery like maybe on a floor mattress or um, an inflatable bed or something like that for the parent that way they can still be present in the child's room overnight for the first six months, except the, the child is now in their room. So that way that transition is a little bit easier. And all they have to do at the six month mark is move the parent out, which is a whole lot easier than moving the baby into their room. Yeah. And do you find that parents will spend like the whole night in the room with the baby or just, yeah. Yeah, most likely, like everyone I've worked with, they will spend the whole night and they have no issues doing that. Obviously, you're sleeping away from your spouse, which could be a good thing or a bad thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, for me, that would have been a good thing because my husband snores. So, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Right. So, and you don't want snoring to wake up the baby. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, Are there things that families should do to like prepare the baby for transitioning to the crib? Are there any like pre-steps to take when you're thinking about making that transition? Yeah, there are a ton. So if you're transitioning from bathnet or pack and play to a crib, then you want to sleep with item that they're going to be sleeping in. So for example, there should really be nothing in their crib except for the crib sheet, the swaddle and the baby. Or the sleep sack, I should say, swaddle or sleep sack um, and the baby. So what you want to do is you want to sleep, you as the parent want to sleep with the crib sheet, their sleep sack, their swaddle, whatever they're going to have, like a item. And that way your comfort smell gets onto the item and then you use that item without washing it, right, mm-hmm. onto the crib. And that smell is familiar to the baby. So that helps relax and calm the baby and give them a sense of familiarity. And that allows them to also adapt to that transition a little bit easier. Yeah, I love that idea. I remember with my first when we decided her to transition into her room, her own room at the crib, and she must have been like over six months. 
but I wore the crib sheet in my bra for a couple of days. Yeah. I'm a breastfeeding mom too. So I'm like, well, it can't hurt to have it like smell a little bit like my milk and everything else. And it worked really well. Like she handled the transition pretty good. Yeah, exactly. And if you're like, you know, it's that that tip, I love giving that tip because it works so well with even separation anxiety as your child gets older and experiences mm. that. Just sleep with their crib sheet. If they're over 12 months and you have separation anxiety, then sleep with their lovey or whatever else that they sleep with essentially and or stick it in your shirt during the day. And, mm. you know, your smell will eventually get on it. Give it to your husband. They The men <laughs> smell more than we do. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I remember with my first two, when she was old enough for a lovey, she would use, I used to sleep in like the the plain white t-shirts that men wear, basically. I'd mm-hmm. sleep in one of those and she ended up using that as her lovey. So for yeah. almost until she was two, she would carry around this dirty, ripped up white t-shirt and I'd try to like buy her a new one and wear it and say, can you swap it out? And she'd be like, no, this is the original shirt. It was like, by the time she was two years old, it was like in tatters. It was so embarrassing to see her like walk around in public with it, but it was so comforting for her and yeah. she loved it and she slept yeah. so much better, especially if I was not home. Because I used to work evenings. When yeah. We now imagine, off. imagine her walking around daycare or something like that with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, daycare providers must see all sorts of things when it comes to lovies. I know my son carried his lovey blanket everywhere, and we really had to cut it because his daycare like changed up the policy that after a certain age, they wouldn't allow anything. So we had to cut it short and we just got rid of it. We just threw it away. (laughs) How did he handle it? Um, There were a few rough nights, but then we just substituted it for like something else, but he doesn't Mm. treat it like a lovey. So we gave him like a big, one of those fleece Mickey Mouse blankets instead Mm. of his little small crib blankets. Um, So he just got a bigger blanket and it was like his favorite character so that made the transition a little bit easier too great can you talk a little bit about like the environment in the room with when you're transitioning to the crib like what sort of lighting do you recommend white noise anything like that yeah so I recommend no light whatsoever like especially if you have a child under the age of two who hasn't become scared of the dark and things like that then you should have no light, no night light, no lamp light, nothing basically. You should use blackout curtains, blinds, whatever you have to use to make it completely pitch black where after your eyes have adjusted to the darkness in their room, you should still not be able to see anything. So the part after your eyes have adjusted is very important because once your eyes adjust, you start seeing light, right? So that's very important to understand. And once you create a very dark space, you want to make sure that there's a sound machine on. Um, I love using the hatch. It grows with your child. My daughter has it and she's five. So it definitely grows with your child. I would recommend no distractions, no toys with lights or flashing lights, noises, anything like that. So eliminate distractions. Nothing above the crib either. So I know people want like a Pinterest worthy nursery, right? <laughs> yeah. So that realistically is not a safe nursery. So the Pinterest nurseries are not safe. I'm just going to break it to you. (laughs) Um, So don't hang anything above the crib that your child can potentially pull down a frame with glass that can fall into your child's crib. We don't want any of that, right? The only thing by the crib should be the monitor and maybe the sound machine and even the sound machine. Make sure the cord isn't close by where the child can pull it once they get to that age where they can start doing those things. So you want the sound machine to be about four to five feet away from the crib and no cords around them, basically. Right. So even when you're thinking like windows, right, you don't want to place your crib mm-hmm. near the window where they could yes. reach the window blinds and the cord blinds. And yes. Arms. That can get very dangerous. Exactly. And nowhere near the curtains either because we don't want them pulling the curtains down. Mm-hmm. What about those like toys that like attach to the side of the crib? Um, Like crib mobiles and stuff. 
Yeah, or they used to, at least when my babies were little, they had like, I know you said like no lights and everything, but they used to have a little, like, it would play music and you'd attach it to the side of the crib. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I actually bought that with my daughter. And then once I started learning more about sleep, I stopped using it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I know exactly what you're talking about. But yeah, none of that. Mobiles are not recommended either. So I wouldn't recommend, I wouldn't waste your money on those things, basically. Mm -hmm. Just save your money, buy less, keep it minimalistic, keep it simple. um, Mm -hmm. And do not worry about a Pinterest-worthy nursery. No one's going in your nursery to look at how pretty it is. Right. Yeah, I remember with my first, I bought the whole, like the themed crib bumper, quilt, every like the the yeah. mobile everything and set it all I spent like so much money on it and then I learned oh I can't have I can't actually have any of this yeah in the crib. so why did I spend all them it's not even like my neighbors came over and was like can we see the crib set up like no one no one cares <laughs> they just want to see the baby exactly and since you talked about bumpers they definitely don't recommend bumpers but they don't even recommend those mesh bumpers. So don't even waste your money on those. Like, yes, people buy them to prevent their baby's head from hitting the crib, but that minor bump on their head is not going to cause any damage. And the risk benefit ratio of having like the bumper versus hitting them, hitting their head, the hitting head is probably safer than having the bumper. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, choose your risk wisely. I would say. And what about those mesh mattresses? Have you seen those? I personally have used the Newton and Naturopedic, Naturopedic, I think Naturopedic. Yeah. So I've used those two and I love those two. I can't speak of any other brand mattresses for cribs, honestly, but I would just get something super firm. Anything like with memory foam or mesh or anything like that is not recommended. So you want to make sure it's super firm. The two brands that I listed, they're perfect and safe for sleep. Great. And have you heard anything about, so I know that there's a lot of theories around SIDS and nobody likes to talk about SIDS, but it's important to talk about. And I know that one of the theories is, at least it was when I was, when my kids were little, is something about the fire resistant coating on the mattress can can increase the risk of SIDS. Have you heard of that? Or what's your opinion on that? You know, honestly, I have not heard of that. Oh, okay. Um, I try to stay away from chemicals, so I don't buy anything with fire resistant anything. I know a lot of PJs have that chemical on them, and I try to stay away from that. I don't know if it increases SIDS risk or not, but that's a good thing. I should I should look into it. I just didn't buy those things because it's a chemical, and we're trying to stay away from chemical exposure with our kids. But yeah, maybe it has something to do with it. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's so interesting how they can say you know this might be the reason and this might be the reason and in the end it's like Mm -hmm. we may never know we may never know yeah yeah SIDS is very like a complicated topic Mm -hmm. and because it could happen for so many reasons and there's so much like shame and guilt associated with it that it's I don't know it's just I don't like to talk about it as much I should say (laughs) Because I try to be like, you know, non-judgmental and I do deal with a lot of clients in India that do coastly bed share, things like that, that have higher risk of SIDS. But at the same time, countries like India, it's due to bias essentially, but the reported rates of SIDS is much lower in India than it is in the US. Mm -hmm. But that's probably also due to bias. It's not getting reported. So, right. Um, it's probably much higher given the population. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So if you have a a parent who might be a little bit nervous about moving their baby, you know, especially if they're moving the baby out of their room um, into the crib, I know that they have a lot of like monitoring devices that you can get and put on your baby's feet or whatever to monitor their breathing or heart rate or whatever. Do you, is that something that you recommend? I actually don't recommend them um, personally, and I haven't, luckily, I haven't had any clients that have used them. I haven't been put in a position where I've had to tell a client, oh, stop using the outlet or stop using the Nanit breathing tracker or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know the outlet was recalled. Um, Mm. 
Re- kind of so, recently too, right? Yeah. 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 So I don't know if um, the Nanit breathing thing is going in that same direction or not. I personally have not used that. I've used the Nanit monitor. That's what I use with both of my children, but not their like breathing system. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a good thing to look into if what the Nanit um, system is in comparison to the outlet because they're essentially doing the same thing. So I'm assuming that's going to be recalled sooner or later too. Do you know why it was recalled? Um, you know, I don't. I, I do remember reading it but I don't recall off the top of my head right now. Yeah. And I remember reading that it gives like a lot of false alarms and can really be scary for parents. Well, yeah. So someone gifted us like a breathing monitor like that. It wasn't the outlet. It was something else. And like, it was expensive. Like when I returned it, Toys R Us was still open back then or Babies R Us. So it was a Babies R Us product and I returned it and it was like a hundred dollar product. And honestly, this was before I became a sleep consultant. I just didn't want to use that product on my baby just because I felt like you know we were exposing them to too much so Mm -hmm. you know we're we're kind of like green I would say (laughs) so we don't want to expose our kids to too many chemicals and EMF and things Mm -hmm. like that so we actually even returned the snoo because I had the snoo for my son and we returned it because it had wi-fi in it and I didn't want my son sitting in a bed with Wi-Fi. Yeah. The snow is like a whole nother podcast. I have so many thoughts on this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big one to talk about. So if you have a family that is transitioning their baby to the crib, you said you recommend that the parents sleep in the room or a parent sleeps in the room. Mm-hmm. What if they are normally like, uh, and did you say that you recommend starting with naps in the crib first? So I don't think we talked about that, but yes, essentially you do want, so that gets a little tricky, right? Because if you start with the naps in the crib and the crib is in their nursery, but then nights are still in the bassinet in your room, then it gets a little tricky with the rolling aspect. So if your child Mm -hmm. is rolling and then you're doing the transition, then I would just recommend you doing it cold turkey and offering everything in the crib. But if you're doing the transition a little bit earlier, before the six-month mark, before the five-month mark, things like that, and your child isn't rolling over, then you can take it a little bit slower and then start with naps in the crib and then do night sleep in the bassinet as long as your child isn't rolling over. And if a family is taking it slower, do you suggest they start off with like one nap a day in the crib and then work their way up or just to do all naps in the crib from the get-go? Yeah, I I am a very like slow person. So I like to use very gentle like approaches. So I like to just test things out. So I would probably just start with one nap in the crib and then for a few days and then maybe do like two naps in the crib for a few more days and then so forth until you're doing all of the naps and then eventually you're going to be doing nights in there as well. And when you start transitioning the baby at night, for some families, I think it, it works if they start, you know, the, they put the baby to sleep in the crib and then when the baby wakes up, they might keep the baby in the room for the rest of the night and then gradually work their way up after each waking. Is that something you recommend or do you think that's not a good idea? So that's something I don't actually recommend is once your baby is in the crib in their room, then I usually tell my clients that if you have a night waking, then you need to stay in their room um, until the baby goes back to sleep and put them back into the crib because you we don't want to confuse them or start new habits and associations. And we definitely don't want them sleeping in the bed. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Let's say you have a baby that's been taking, you know, one to two hour naps and going like four or five hour stretches at night and you transition to the crib and all of a sudden they're sleeping for like 30 minutes and then waking up and they switched over to cat napping. What would you recommend in that situation? Yeah. So those situations are going to occur and, you know, I'm being very honest, though, that's bound to happen. So just be ready for it. Um, what you can do is you can try to save those naps if they're cat naps and 
what you can do is if your child wakes up early from a nap and they're not crying, then I like to practice what's called a crib hour is essentially leaving them in their crib until it's time for them to wake up or it's reached the hour mark or it's time for their next feeding, whatever comes first. And then if they wake up crying, then what you can do is you can pick them up, you can rock them back to sleep and just do a contact nap. If you're doing the contact nap, though, I always recommend you to stay in the room and still offer that nap in a controlled environment. So when I say controlled environment, you still want to keep the lights off, keep it dark, keep the sound machine on, no talking. So you shouldn't be having a conversation with your child when you're trying to put them to sleep. That's a big one because I get clients telling me all the time, my husband's like singing to them and talking to them. I'm like, no, no, no. We don't want to have a conversation with your child when you're trying to put them to sleep. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) So keep it a controlled environment, even when you're offering that contact nap. And then just offer the contact nap. If they sleep, they sleep. If not, just hold them in your arms until it's time for them to wake up or it's time for the next next feeding or until it's the hour mark, whichever comes first, like I said. Okay. And if this is happening like in the dark room, what do you recommend or at night? Because I know you said that it's very important to have everything like dark, dark so that you can't see anything even after your eyes adjust. But some babies are still waking up and they need to be fed. So when the parent goes in to feed and take care of the baby, what -hmm. should they do about lighting them? Because you need to see to do that. Yeah. So you can definitely turn on a nightlight when you're going into the room and you need to see things. So having like a nightlight or I wouldn't recommend like a table lamp because table lamps tend to be super bright. But this is why I love recommending the hatch because the hatch has a nightlight system built into it that's controlled on your phone. So what you can do is you can open up your hatch app, you can turn on the light feature, and then you can also adjust the level of the light that you need. So right before you're going into the room, you turn on that light and then you can see. And then as soon as you're done putting your baby back to sleep, you just turn it off before you're leaving the room or after you leave the room. And it works like a charm. And I love it. Or just plug in a nightlight. And, you know, if you know mm-hmm. where the plugs are and the outlets are, then it's a little bit easier. Or you can use your phone as well. But I I, I don't usually recommend taking your phone into the nursery in the middle of the night, just because, you know, that, that light from the phone can be a little bit too bright, unless you have it on the very low feature. Mm -hmm. So it just really depends. You just want to keep it very dim lit where only you can see things. And can you explain a little bit more about what the hatch is for those that don't know? Yeah. So the hatch is essentially like a nightlight, a sound machine in one. It acts like a sound machine essentially for your newborns and infants. And then a nightlight for your for the parents as you're going in in the middle of the night to attend to your child. And then as your child gets older, it also acts like a signal. So for imagine like an 18 or 20 month old, right? That's like refusing bedtime, having a hard time, so much energy, then you can start teaching them colors. At that time, they probably are learning colors. If not, maybe closer to two, they're learning colors. Whenever they understand those colors concepts, basically, you can start associating sleep time with a given color and awake time with another color because the hatch allows you to change the colors that the nightlight produces, which is really good. Um, so I love that for that reason. It also is helpful when you have like a preschooler or a toddler that has those early risings that comes into your room at five in the morning and, you know, you just need them to sleep until seven, right? So you basically tell your toddler or preschooler, listen, the blue light or the red light or green light, whatever light you want to associate wake up with will turn on and that's when you're allowed to leave the room. And if you do that, then you may get a reward. So, I mean, but the reward systems are, you know, a conversation for another day. Yeah. yeah. It's a little hard to reward a baby that's under six months. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Why do you think some babies do start catnapping when they transition to the crib? Yeah. So it depends on when you're transitioning to the crib because honestly, catnaps are super normal and common with 
babies in general because naps technically don't consolidate until after six months or when they're honestly when they're on a two nap schedule. So when your child is under six months, I would probably say that cat naps are pretty normal. And, you know, it's not something that you need to be worried about too much. There's definitely strategies that you can implement to save those naps. Like we talked about the crib hour and assisted naps. So you can definitely do those just to give you a bit of a stretch. And that way your days aren't going to be off with like five or six 30 minute naps, right? We don't want that. So instead we want to have like, if your child is on a three nap schedule, then you want to just do those three naps instead of doing five naps. So yeah. That's good to know because I know I get a lot of that, a lot of those questions for, you know, very young babies, like one month, two months, it's like they'll only sleep for 30 minutes unless you're sleeping on me, um, which is contact napping can be helpful. Yeah. And, you know, parents get like a shock when newborns who are super drowsy um, and sleepy all the time go from sleeping all the time to having those cat naps, right? Well, that's a normal development because around like eight months, eight weeks is when they kind of get more awake in a way, right? So their bodies start like producing like hormones that trigger sleep and their circadian rhythm starts forming and they become more awake. Their day-night confusion tends to go away around that time as well. So there's so much going on around like the eight, nine week mark that causes them to be more awake, have those cat naps, go from sleeping two hours for naps to 30 minutes, right? So all of those are very normal as far as development goes. Great. And I think that's really reassuring to hear for a lot of families because sleep is such an issue for families. <laughs> and I feel like there's no like prenatal education really. Um, like I'm like, I'm yeah. sure you have classes, and, but in terms of like the the providers that people normally see, they don't really talk about infant sleep. With, with they parents. don't, they don't at all. <laughs> and then they you don't get the talk r- about our care. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, they don't talk about breastfeeding either. And then you have like the family members who are like, is he a good baby? Is he sleeping through the night already? It's like, no, stop. I know. I know. It's horrible. What if you have a baby that's just really, really resistant to the idea of sleeping in the crib? Like they wake up crying. They just don't settle in the crib. Yeah. So my philosophy is practice over perfection. So as long as you can practice like exposing them to the crib at some point, and then you eventually just have to resort to contact naps or going back to the bassinet or whatever you have to do, that's fine. But as long as you're practicing to expose them to their new environment, which is the crib, the more you practice, the more they're going to figure out like, okay, mom's not messing around or dad's not messing around. This is where I sleep and this is where mm-hmm. I'm going to go to sleep now. So mm-hmm. it's practice over perfection. And this is something I preach to my clients all the time. I love that. I say to my clients something very similar. I say progress, not perfection. Because, mm-hmm. you know, some of the issues just with sleep, with eating, it's not going to be fixed overnight and you have to practice with it. I don't have like a magic exactly. wand that I can wave and like fix all the feeding issues right away. Exactly. So if there's one thing that you wanted parents to know about transitioning their baby to the crib, what would it be? Um, You know, take it slow and do it when you're ready or when your baby shows signs of them being ready. Like don't be like forced to do it or you know pressured yeah pressured or anything like that just do it on your own terms but definitely do it when your baby's ready Mm -hmm. I love that because sometimes people like well my neighbor's baby is already sleeping in the crib for like 12 hours overnight everybody's journey is different every baby is different every family is different exactly yeah some parents I've had that have told me they've transition their baby from day one into the crib and you know that's awesome but some families don't transition until six seven months and that's also great so whatever is meant to be will happen for your family and baby perfect love it say it louder for those in the back (laughs) (laughs) 
Exactly. This was wonderful. You gave so many great tips. I'm so glad that we did this. Where can families find you if they want some extra support or want to learn more about you? Yeah, sure. So I am nested to rested sleep over on Instagram, Facebook, my website, basically everywhere. I am under nested to rested sleep. And I have tons and tons of free resources and guides available depending on your child's age group. So I have a free guide for newborn sleep, a free guide for sleep regressions, a free guide for if your child is ready to drop their last nap and how to drop that last nap. Mm -hmm. And I have some checklists for baby registries as well as a travel checklist. So tons and tons of free resources on the link that's in my Instagram bio. If you click on that, you can get all of those free baby sleep resources. And I offer one-on-one sleep coaching to parents who are ready to sleep train uh, their children and get the rest that they need and deserve. Awesome. Are you still doing your membership site too? Your membership too? Yeah. So it's launching again in September. So I'm going to be doing another launch of it in September. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'll probably do it again, maybe in January. So September will be the last one of the year. Nice. All right. And I will put those links in the show notes that families can reach out to you if they feel like they need more support. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Yeah. Thank you for having me on your podcast, Shelly. It's always a pleasure talking to you. It, it, you got, you're just so much fun to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're just brutally honest people. That's why we get along. I know. <laughs> That's why we're always like messing each other on Instagram. Like, <laughs> I right, have a good night. Okay. You too. Bye. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening.